0: Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing As A Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber, I am sitting here with James Harkin. Andrew Hunter-Murray and Anna Chesinski and once again we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days and in no particular order here we go starting with back number one and that's you Anna.
1: My fact this week is that Harvard Business School recommends companies locate their headquarters in rainier places because it makes employees more productive. Mm. and that's why our output is so massive here <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this actually goes against what people think so they as part of the same study or a similar one they asked people what they thought what effect they thought bad weather would have on productivity 80% of people said they thought it would decrease it Turned out they did this big study in a Tokyo bank and they found that employees processed loan applications much faster. So that's something that requires a lot of focus and concentration much faster and more quickly on rainy days than sunny ones. And it was because when they investigated it, that nice weather causes more cognitive distractions, Mm. i.e. people sit in their offices fantasizing about what else they could be doing yeah, yeah
0: they worked out was the effect is so great that if it's a sunny day versus when it's rainy that nine hundred and thirty seven thousand dollars is what they would have made if it was continuously rainy
2: basically this
3: particular yeah this, yeah, this, this bank depends in in on Turkey. the size of
2: the business it's not like you can have an ice cream van and you'll make a million quid <laughs> especially <Yeah. It's
3: laughs> not when it rains <laughs> I think in, in actual fact um, ice cream vans is one of the few businesses where sun is better
0: well this what? doesn't all go well for my wealth chain of ice cream vans does it? <laughs> but weirdly, my sister and brother-in-law had—they've just left Abu Dhabi—but they had a they had an ice cream business out there uh, as a side business, and it was a little ice cream shop by the beach. Yeah. And they couldn't operate it in summer. It's so hot in Abu Dhabi; it can only function in the winter. Well, because wow.
2: it all melts. Yeah, it's just too hot outside. It gets up to fifty. But sure, yeah. is it the is it that people don't really go outside? Yeah, yeah. Right. right, Uh, So it's not like the ice cream melts. Well, it's not like if you buy an ice cream, it instantly vaporizes.
1: (laughs) 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 I demand another. Where is this one?
2: Um, One thing I found is, uh, so this was from the same uh, article that this came from, which is, I really like this. Campbell Soup, that company, they advertise based on the weather. So when the weather is bad, in particular cities, they buy more advertising space because they know that people will want cozy, warming food. That's a great idea. So like a nice, thick country vegetable soup on cold days. Exactly.
3: And maybe a light broth. On some gaspacho <laughs> on a hot day. A there thin mist of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. brilliant. It's weird. It's so cool. In, when it's cold and everyone has flu, they could have chicken soup because everyone likes they it. They have a flu yeah. index
1: as well. Do they? Yeah. No. So they made, yeah, they made a thing. So the thing Andy's talking about is called the misery index. and For them, it's actually a happiness index because it means more sales. And when the misery index goes up by 5%, then they cue a chicken soup advert on the radio. And then that was so successful, they've got a flu index now. Now. so as soon wow. as there's a flu outbreak that's, wow. that's really incredible. <laughs> they must be worrying.
3: praying for spanish flu to come back or something <laughs> <laughs>
1: they're not evil no you're right they're just selling soup
0: you know uh, if it's very rainy uh, there's what type of business it's actually good for umbrellas ponchos you, yeah oh I've, I've um i've opened people up people who
3: take photographs of puddles <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, the three main
3: rain based businesses oh i'll <laughs> well, admit i run out after two
1: <laughs> you make a million more dollars a year if you take photographs of puddles in the rain
2: newspaper editors the world over get me some puddle photographs
0: <laughs> i was actually talking post rain uh oh yeah um and I, rain in the t- post. T- towels <laughs> to dry to dry to dry things Towels are good yeah no helicopter businesses do very well, particularly uh, for orchards, because it, when there's huge amount of rainfall, certain things certain vegetables, certain grapes, get so saturated that they need to get the, the water out immediately, so they hire helicopters in and cherry orchards will have helicopters just hovering over yeah. them <laughs> and drying off all of the grounds uh, That's so to, get, cool. yeah, to get it back on the road That's so, really cool. The helicopter business
1: um, Do you know the kind of weather that one study found is the only type of weather that really has an impact on your mood? Um... What's, so I can give you the, the weather categories or do you want to make <laughs> No, right. where, uh, No. The
3: earth is hit by a meteorite and yeah. this rain of, um, you know, metal
1: falling from the
2: sky. Firestorms.
1: People don't mind at all. They just go about their day. <laughs> <laughs> We're very stoic. Okay, give us some options. Uh, so this is a study in the 1980s and it found the best predictor of mood uh, was in a certain type of weather. The options are that they looked at sunniness, temperature, raininess, wind, humidity, and. and...
3: It's not going to be the last one. Can
2: I bet the, on the last one? Can I bet that it is the last one, which I think is mist? Because I think Ooh. mist always affects my mood very much. Ooh, is it yes. in a good way or bad way? And it sort of just makes me feel spooky. Does it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you look along, you can't see anything, it's a bit spooky. That's true. Yes, yeah. it is
1: quite exciting. You feel like yeah. you're in a Victorian novel. Yeah, so yeah. that's
2: the main effect that I think. I'm going to say it's wind. Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: because it makes me feel more agitated. <laughs> because the <laughs> molecules around me are so agitated, they kind of somehow make me feel a bit yeah. on edge. Yeah, oh, I get that as I well. I
1: think it's
0: got to be one of these uh, two. I'm it going for be. sunniness. Oh. Sunniness makes me a dickhead. That's why I had to leave Australia. <laughs> it's, I was a right asshole over there, but now I'm I'm sort of a bit more calm. But oh, I like get okay. in a horrible mood when it's way too hot. Do you? Yeah. Oh, no, horrible. so you're not
1: talking about sunniness, you're talking about temperature. Oh, yeah. All right. Because it can be yes. sunny. And it's cold. sunny today, for instance. It's a beautiful Sunday. day That's true. Today. Okay, so but he has yeah. been a
3: bit of an asshole today.
1: How <laughs> <laughs> do you explain that? I was just being a bit
0: of a tricky dick.
3: Okay, so
1: yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, wow, you've listed almost all the things except the one that it is. <laughs> oh. Humidity was found to be the only one that has a significant mm. impact on activity and mood. And it's because people feel very sleepy and they can't concentrate, which is oh, true, right? Yeah, when you go true. to a humid place, you feel really gross. Kind of.
0: but I So I grew up in Hong Kong, which was all humid
2: all the time.
1: Mm. So um, I guess as established, it, you're always a dickhead now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've
0: never thought how this
2: weather has really <laughs> moulded me. Did you um, find your concentration improved when you came here? Uh, mate, I'm not the good case study to ask about. <laughs>
3: um, the wettest day of the year on Earth, mm. whatever day it is, what percentage of the rain from the year do you think falls on that one day? Okay, Ooh.
2: so a normal, if there are 365 days, it would be a bit less than 0.3% on an average day. Yeah. So I'll say 1%, triple yeah. mm. the average. I'm going to oh. say... 35% <laughs> love it love great day for the puddle photographer
3: that day, he?
1: <laughs> he's a
3: billionaire
0: uh, it is
3: 8.3% wow
0: that's
3: a lot it's about 12th of the earth's rain falls on a single day what day me. is that what day well, we don't know it's different we every- don't know
0: surely that's the one day we would definitely <laughs> know <laughs> it's like the same day every it's year day. Day. I know <laughs> oh yeah right I meant, I meant when was the last time that we no it's
2: okay. always the third
0: Tuesday after
3: Easter <laughs> Uh, and 50% of the Earth's precipitation falls on the 12 wettest days of wow. the year. Wow. That's
1: amazing. Isn't that
3: amazing? It's incredible.
1: Wow. That's really cool. It'd be so great if it was the same every year. And we could just do a 12 day, what was it? 12 days. 12 day day long hibernation or something. I wonder if it
2: happens in a period of the year though, because lots of countries have big rainy seasons. So there must be a likelihood of it being.
3: Well, the paper, um, the article where I read this, it said one key question the researchers wrote is when during the year these extreme precipitation events are likely to occur. So I think basically they don't really know when it's going to be, but they'll try and work it out.
2: Just on rainy conditions, as in uh, preparing for rain, have you heard of the rain shader? No. Ooh. This is a new kind of umbrella which has been invented in the last few years, and it is designed to solve the problems of um, what are the problems of umbrellas? They get in people's eyes. They get in people's Inside eyes. Out. Uh, oh, yeah, that's that the is main one, actually. actually. That's yeah. the main one. Yeah, that's a really good one. And there's you one more. never have one on you when you need it. That's not the one I'm okay. looking for. Uh,
1: <laughs> they bre- break the. No, materi- no just
2: people just... take them if you
0: leave
3: them that at the front a, of a
2: store. Bradders are awful, aren't <laughs> <you> it? like,
3: <laughs> If it's really windy, you might blow away like Mary Poppins. Yeah, that's. Yeah.
2: Mm. She was...
1: doesn't. Have you seen the film? <laughs> <laughs> she's not trying to help them out and suddenly, against her will, she's blown away into another land. That's why the
2: sequel's only 17 minutes long. Very
1: sad.
2: Yeah,
0: opening lines sorry about that um where were
2: we um no it's that you know when you tilt it all the water can fall off onto someone else oh cut it. that's a small problem hold it upside down but huh? you could can... <laughs> what um so the rain shader is this new. It basically looks like a motorbike helmet, but in in umbrella form. So it's white. It's open at the front, and then at the back, it's really low. It's like wearing a big hel- helmet mm. that's sort of cut out at the front. Cool, so that yeah. means you can't ever poke someone in the eye with it.
3: That's really
2: good.
1: That's good. Yeah. And I don't think that would turn inside out either. So I think it's solving more problems than I it creating. I think it might. To. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um,
3: in Harvard Business School, yeah. um, there's a paper that they wrote quite recently called "Toxic Workers." And this is about superstar workers who outperform their colleagues by two to one or more, but who are awful to be around. (laughs) And they want to work out whether it's useful to have these kind of amazing workers or whether they do way too much harm than good. What do you think? Interesting. What do we think of James? (laughs) (laughs) The question we're being asked. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, apparently according to them it's better to hire two average employees than to keep one superstar on the payroll Um, do you guys
1: know about the this has always been one of my favourite studies the Harvard Grant study which is this massive, it's famous longitudinal study and it's followed 268 people for 80 years so it started following them when they were at Harvard mm. and it studies every tiny aspect of their lives and so it's told us so much about the decisions that you make and the personalities that you have what impact that has on your life it's like an unbelievable level of detail so it measures things like, like the size of moles on their body and how many teaspoons of sugar they have in their tea and the hanging length of your Scrotum, and then they sort of follow the them. Hanging they, that hanging length, guys, um, as
2: opposed to when you've got it pinned back. <laughs> a trip over it?
3: <laughs> no, just <Whoa>.
1: <laughs> So they measure all this, and they find out. You know, are they successful? Actually, JFK was one of the people who was originally in it, so he was successful, what? but actually quite what? unlucky. Um, and yeah. at the moment, I think there are only about uh, not many of them left now. obviously I think there were 19 left a couple of years but it's ago. all the
2: ones with the longest scrotums and that's the interesting <laughs> Imagine thing. If
1: that was true' that's the
2: sole predictor of how you do in life? <laughs>
1: no because they all tripped over and concussed themselves <laughs> years ago. What they basically have found or what the person who's in charge of it now says is the most important discovery is that um, your relationships are the most important predictor of health, mental and physical but literally the most important more important important than cholesterol, more important than diet, it's, you know, the warmth of your relationships mm. and that dictates how much you'll earn in the end and it dictates how successful you'll be and how happy you'll be. Very mm-hmm. good. There we go.
3: Or it could just be that rich people can buy relationships. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's that.
2: Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that when they are mating, male cuttlefish can flirt with one side of their body and simultaneously pretend to be a female with the other side of their body. Okay. It's it's a really weird thing they do. So cuttlefish are mollusks in the ocean, aren't mm. they? They're a kind of mollusk. And um, they're a bit squidgy and a bit octopus-y. Mm. And, yes. Um, they, they change the pattern of their skin all the time for camouflage. But they do it for lots of different reasons. So they might do it to avoid predators, or they sometimes do it even to catch prey. But one thing they do is when they're courting, um, male cuttlefish display you know, courtship patterns to females on their bodies. But they don't want other males to fight them. So they simultaneously make the back half of their body display a female pattern. So a male who's standing behind the flirting male... Will yeah. think, oh, that's just two female cuttlefish having a chat with each other, and he okay. won't get in the way. But if it looks like it's a male chatting to a female, they might try and break it up. But won't? Is there no chance that the male cuttlefish will start
0: floating with the back of the f- the female well, camouflage? That sometimes
2: happens. Yeah, because <laughs> that would just
0: that so, could just be a long queue. It it's all- like <laughs>
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, basically, yeah, that does happen. Wow. So. Um, some males have harems of females which they guard jealously from challengers and other males disguise themselves to look female, sneak in, have Mm -hmm. sex with the real females and then sneak out. But sometimes the disguised males look so good that the, the alpha male will guard him as part of his harem. Oh, so wow. you can have a harem which has mostly males in it, <laughs> That's um, amazing. unbeknownst wow. to you, all pretending to be females. But I... they
1: only look good from the back, so they're just never going around the front. <laughs> yeah, no, they... <laughs> Strictly arse-based <preferences>. it's <laughs> They like, are amazing. They're incredible. They also have two prehensile tentacles, I think, on the front, which sometimes they hide. They've got pockets under their eyes <laughs> where they put them when they're not using them. Cool. get them out and grab stuff. <laughs> wow. under their eyes. Such a great place to have a pocket.
2: <laughs> they're so weird. It's so weird
0: when you don't because octopuses I think we all know are quite weird so when you yeah. talk about them it's kind of but this is all just like what is this animal? Are yeah. we just joking? Yeah. Are we lying? It's yeah. got pockets under its eyes it turns its butt into a woman. It's like
1: come on. The most amazing thing about cuttlefish which people maybe know and David Attenborough is very good at showing uh, is that their disguises. right? Mm. So they disguise themselves even better than You know the octopuses that can do it and other things and they can do it within a few milliseconds they can just change colour and they can give themselves stripes, like you say, kind of courting patterns, it is incredible
3: Um, They can, as well as changing the colour, they can change from smooth to bumpy the skin, Wow, uh, which is a really cool idea. Yeah, so they (laughs) they
0: mimic the object that they might be camouflaging themselves on. Yeah, but not
3: just colour but also the... Yeah, the texture Like like covering
1: yourself in warts, suddenly Yeah, exactly, if
3: you want to pretend to be a which? which? I, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> A
1: lot of those on the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Um,
2: I read it as they have the equivalent of hundreds of cocktail umbrellas under their skin. So they, can, oh. they have all these structures that they can sort of lock upright to make themselves look knobbly, basically, uh, if they want to look like coral, yeah, for wow. example. And that,
3: co- that camouflage, they can freeze it and lock it in place for up to an hour. So they're wow. it all the time, but they can just go, okay, I'm going to stay like this for an hour now.
2: Wow. That's so, yeah. They are really weird and really oh, cool. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah,
3: and also these changes are to do with their mood and what, whether they're hungry or scared or whatever. Mm. So you can look at the colors on a cuttlefish
2: and work out what it's feeling. That would be useful <laughs> in humans. That's so good. Um, they can do a chessboard pattern. No, they, <laughs> they can They can. They can make themselves look exactly like a chessboard. Why? For when they need for to when, camouflage a next to a a game
1: of chess going <laughs> on <around>. because
3: <laughs> they can do the bumping stuff as well the, the um
1: well, so you're saying they can do the pieces? That's <laughs> <what I'm thinking. laughs>
3: they can have an actual game on their own body. That'd be
2: amazing.
0: That's very cool. Um, Wait, yeah. so
2: can you explain the chessboard thing? Why would they do that? Well, it, they they've been tested by scientists. There's yeah. no natural chessboard pattern, but it's just to show how versatile they are. That's incredible. So they can. P- oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And they can. Um, Richard Hammond, who used to be on Top Gear, he put- could also do that. He could do that. <laughs> 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 but terribly sadly he doesn't know the rules <laughs> it's a real shame um, no he as one of his shows they put a, a cuttlefish in an underwater lounge which they'd mocked up which had also sort of like a zebra pattern sofa and stuff they were just te- putting it and that was in Richard
3: Hamm- Hammond's house did you say or <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> sorry well, how does he they, come into this they, it,
2: he was making a show oh, and yeah, they yeah. it was about cool um, animals or something and um, it featured an. Un- they created an underwater lounge with all this stuff right Richard Shaman's lounge is not underwater. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: so, okay, so they perfectly mimicked a chessboard. Yeah. That is so cool. It's really bizarre. Yeah.
1: Brilliant. I mean, it wouldn't be perfect. Don't get excited. <laughs>
0: no, but I mean, I, well, I'm actually more excited by the experiment that we are taking non-underwater based objects and seeing if they can mimic that because you wouldn't naturally see that. Yeah. yeah,
1: I'm interested that they can. I didn't realize they could actually mimic something they'd never seen before. There might be half a three, dozen colourfish and... fish
2: in this room now. We don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this entire building is colourfish fish from top to bottom. <laughs>
2: Uh, My
3: favourite cuttlefish is the bottom-dwelling flamboyant cuttlefish. (laughs) We'll say that again then. The bottom-dwelling flamboyant cuttlefish. God, if you've Um, got
1: something dwelling in your bottom, you don't want it to be flamboyant, I
3: think. (laughs) Uh, It's the only mollusk with a quadrupedal gait. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, that is incredible. The way they hunt is cool. So they've got... If you look at them, they look exactly like the Oods from Doctor Who, and I know only Dan will know what I'm talking about, but that's what a lot of them look like, and so they've got these sort of big, long funnels on their nose, and the way they, a lot of them catch prey is by blasting their funnel at the sand, and they'll blow up a prawn that's having a nap. (laughs) 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 Wow. And just shoots up into the... The prawn's nap? I suppose they must do, right? Everyone's got a nap. Yeah. They hunt in the day, and prawns are nocturnal, so they're often asleep in the day. Just, what a horrible way to wake up being blasted out of your bed <laughs> yeah. into the mouth of a nude. One thing about cuttlefish that might also be known is they give us sepia. They give us basically the look of Victorian photographs. What? Right? what? Yeah, sepia ink. So they have an ink sac. In yeah. There are three things that develop when they're an embryo. The first three things that develop are their two eyes, weird shaped eyes, and then their ink sac. And that's a defense mechanism. So they blast out ink as a last resort if they're being chased. And that's where we get sepia. It's our main source of that colour. Mm. Still wait. to
0: this day, or the original...
1: Yeah, I think Wow, it's, yeah. that's amazing. So what?
3: sepia is like that browny colour, isn't it? Yeah. Is it? Yeah,
1: that you put over photographs to make them look That sort of Victorian-looking
2: yeah, photo. But, uh, w- wait, sorry, did that get used in the Victorian photo process? We needed cuttlefish yes. ink?
1: Yeah. yeah. That's cool. incredible. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. They're a you handy, wouldn't, handy little guy.
2: You just wouldn't think there would be enough cuttlefish to make enough sepia for the Victorian photo industry. But there's so
0: much cuttlefish.
2: And also probably wasn't that big a industry in those days. Oh, yeah. It's not like no. mobile phones where everyone's got a camera these days. That's it's true. Any- just the rich people. Yeah. Anyone can be a puddle photographer these days. <laughs> All the art has been lost from the trade. <laughs> uh,
1: and it's not like every time you put a sepia filter over your iPhone photo, a cuttlefish has to die. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> We've moved on. There's no like when you go to Snappy Snap's huge tank full of cuttlefish <laughs> <and> the- <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that William
3: of Orange's favorite drink was cock ale, which was <laughs> which was a drink. It's made of ale with a cock in it, a cockerel, a rooster. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was they put the rooster in when it was being brewed and the idea was that it would put something into the mix which would give you virility and it was like the Red Bull of its day almost (laughs) (laughs) and actually the first known recipe for cock ale was in 1669 and it was written by a guy called Sir Kenelm Digby Oh, yeah. Who, oh. People who know the f- podcast might remember his father, yep. Everard Digby. Yeah. Kidding! <laughs> who was one of the gunpowder plotters. Everard uh, Digby all the makes a return. This is so yeah. exciting. <laughs> um, yeah. So Kenon Digby, he wrote a lot of um, uh, like cookbooks uh, and he invented bacon and eggs as well, actually. Oh, wow. he, first,
1: b- Sorry, I think we give pigs a lot of the credit for bacon and chickens the credit for eggs. You're he right. just invented putting them together. It I don't think idea. so. I think oh, if we and cooked
2: you. and ate me, for example, I wouldn't be able to claim credit for the recipe. No, that's <laughs> fair
1: enough. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, that's fair
3: enough. The recipe of this, take eight gallons of ale, take a cock and boil him well. Then take four pounds of raisins, of the sun well stoned, two or three nutmegs, three or four flakes of mace, half a pound of dates, beat all these with a the mortar, and put them in two quarts of the best sack. Don't know what sack is. And then when the ale hath done working, put these in and stop it close six or seven days, and then bottle it, and after a month you may drink it. Wow. So it's a bit like a mold. Cocktail.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think sack is uh,
2: kind of wine, isn't I think it? like sack, maybe fortified
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. wine. I'm not sure. Well, there's yeah. a there is a theory, which is a terrible theory. It can't be right, but um, because I know, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, I've beca- read this theory. Yeah, because they were adding, you know, this new uh, element ingredient to something that shouldn't be there. Cock ale was effectively
2: the origins of cocktail. It's just not true. It's not, I'm saying it's a theory. Where do you think it came from then, cocktail? Um, oh, there are different... I, I can't remember. There are other bad theories as well, yeah. but that's well,
3: that's worse. Here's another bad theory. Um, <laughs> so a cocktail used to be a horse with a docked tail uh, because it looked a bit like a cock's comb. Uh, and then it became a word for a horse of a mixed pedigree. And then mm. it became a drink because it had lots of mixes of different drinks in it. That's right. one theory. Okay. And H.L. Mencken mm. thought that it came from the French coquetier, meaning egg cup. Because you would drink it out of a very small cup, oh. cocktail. Oh, that I like that one. That's, yeah, that's my favourite so far. I
0: think none of them are true. Yeah, um, I can't believe we know who made bacon and eggs for the first time. Yeah, sorry, right, right? we've just kind of danced over that, but that's that's huge. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Uh, someone
3: else probably would have done it. And actually, he was just <laughs> writing down uh, recipes, right? So, right, he didn't invent. I don't think he invented cocktail either. I think he just wrote it down. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: There's recipes a-
1: were simpler then, weren't they? You just wrote bacon, eggs, <laughs> and you went down in history. No, they're
2: really complicated. Lots of them. So there's yeah, a 1739 yeah. cock ale recipe in a book called The Complete Housewife, which is one of the first big household manuals. Mm. And it starts with, take 10 gallons of ale and a large cock, the older the better. But then you had to stamp on it in a mortar until it was its bones were broken. Oh. It said, parboil the cock, flay it, and stamp him in a stone mortar. Yeah, yeah,
1: my mortar's not big enough to be stamping around in. Need a bigger mortar?
2: <laughs> uh, another
0: weird ingredient for old uh drinks. Um, cider in the 16th century used to have
2: sheep's blood added to it, Cornwall sheep's blood. I wonder at what point they realized that it's just nicer without the sheep's blood in it. That <laughs> <laughs> one day they'd run out of sheep's blood and they just made cider. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You were laughed out of the pub if you suggested. <laughs> Do you think we could? Yeah, so the sort of precursors to beer seem to all have been mould spice beer. Um. I think our kind of beer that doesn't contain any spices and flavours is the anomaly in history, really. So you see all these recipes for kind of heating up beer. They always were adding cinnamon and cloves and nutmeg and ginger. Another thing they added, almost always, if you look back to beer recipes, if you look in all old books and stuff or from the sixteen, seventeen hundreds, 1700s, toast. So they always put toast on top of beer, didn't they? Put Floated me. it. Yeah, so they'll say, like, wow. you know, do Like this a crouton beer. in a soup, basically. Yeah, like giant croutons. Yeah. <laughs> so that's cool.
3: I'd like a crouton. In a, in a pint? I, well, I like beer and I like croutons. There we go. Seems likely that I would like both these things. Yeah. I think you'd love the
1: 1600s.
2: <laughs> it's hard, though, isn't it, to- Most beer glasses, most pints are not quite big enough for a full slice of toast to float on the surface. No,
1: no, but these these beers were fitting entire roosters in them. So the vessels were bigger. what, What was the point of the toast? Well, one recipe I read explained why the toast was there. It said it claps the white waistcoat on a cup of good drink.
2: Oh, brilliant. Stops. That's really clear. Cool. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, great.
3: Yeah.
2: Oh, like, right. oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, the White Ways yeah, Code. Oh, wow. Camping. Yeah, okay. yeah. Can we all
0: yeah. understand that. <laughs> um, I was reading about just the consumption of alcohol in the 1600s, and um, I found this thing that Parliament passed. It was an act uh, that I'd not heard of. It was the act to repress the odious and loathsome sin of drunkenness. Ooh. It was because everyone was just getting so drunk all the time. that the wording of that is just stunning. Yeah, um, odious. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so hops, which were medicinal plants um they they'd been added to beers, and I think that was a way around of um saying that you were doing it for medical purposes as opposed to it being, mm. yeah just getting drunk, so oh yeah, was- and they
1: didn't like hops in Britain, they really didn't like hops, so when we talk about beer from thousands of years ago, it's not beer like we know it, so beer to be classified as beer now has to be made with hops. But they only actually came to England in the 1400s, I think, from the Netherlands. And everyone thought they were a bit poisonous. They were a bit weird. So that's, you know, it's the plant that adds the bitter taste Mm, to beer. And actually, the first person to describe hops scientifically and talk about how they were used in beer was a woman. It was a Christian botanist and abbess who was called Hildegard of Bingen. (laughs)
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, I've heard of her actually.
1: Yeah, she was oh a big God. deal. Yeah, she was quite revolutionary in did the she, beer industry. Did she see lots of?
3: Oh, I can't remember what about her now. I think she saw lots of um, visions and stuff, didn't she? Is that the she,
1: same Hildegard?
3: Oh, maybe not. Is there more than one Hildegard? Sometimes. Can't it's a be that many. Common name. We?
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> there was one who saw lots of visions and then wrote one of the first books Ooh. or something. But oh, maybe it, it was a her. different one. Yeah, no, it might have been her. I don't know.
1: She was big. She wasn't actually a fan of hops, even though she knew how they were used. She said, they make the soul of man sad and weigh down his inner organs. Whoa. That's kind of what it feels like after seven pints.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, There is a thing, I can't remember exactly what it is, but in Germany you're only allowed three ingredients in beer to this day. Really? I think it's hops, water and, what would it be, barley? Barley, yeah. And I think that it's really strict, and they've they've had hundreds and hundreds of years of rules about this. So there was the Brauordnung in 16th century Bavaria, mm-hmm. where you weren't allowed to make beer between the 23rd of April and 29th of September. So no brewing allowed, because um, brewers caught, breweries caught fire very easily because they're all made of wood, and uh, there were lots of coal fires to heat them up. So it was it was bad for fires, so they banned it. But they you had to have cellars to store beer from the winter mm-hmm. so that you could drink it in the summer mm-hmm. and the breweries stored them in big underground uh, cellars and then above ground they planted trees to keep them shady because mm-hmm. they wanted to keep the cool in the cellars and then they started adding tables and gravel to these un- you know, above ground tree areas mm-hmm. and that's the beginning of the beer garden.
1: Oh wow. Cool.
2: So the, yeah, the beer garden comes from this ban on, on brewing in the summer.
1: And it was actually for beer, really, the beer garden, yeah. not yes. for us.
2: Well, yeah, we're in <laughs> someone
3: else's garden. Yeah. Yeah.
1: the beer. Mm. Um, so, just speaking of German beer, you know Pilsner? Yes. So you yeah. know where that name comes from?
3: I thought it was a place or something. Is it?
1: it? So it is a place. It's Pilsen. from it's from Pilsen, yeah, mm. which was one of Europe's first beer brewing capitals. And Pilso, so it was called Pilsen when it became this beer brewing capital, and that is because that was the German word for henbane, which is like a really deadly poisonous plant. Oh. But they used to put that in beer all the time so they they would brew beer with henbane does that not make it really I mean that is
2: really poisonous. poisonous yeah
1: it's very dangerous what were
2: they doing with beer for hundreds of years (laughs) let's put cockerels in it let's put sheep's blood in it and poison (laughs) there was no no wonder they went three ingredients that's it
1: for that one (laughs) but a little bit of
3: poison (laughs) no no (laughs) Uh,
1: it gave you hallucinations if you managed to escape Uh, death it was quite fun but so that's where Pilsner comes from is after henbane because that was a crucial ingredient of deadly beer whoa very cool Um, just one last weird origin thing Um, so you mentioned that that beer brewing book you mentioned earlier beer brewing book was for a housewife Beer brewing was like sort of solely a women's thing across the world, wherever beer was brewed until Ooh. pretty recently, until basically the fifteenth, 1600s when hops actually came in. So the ale wife is a thing because oh, it was yeah. always the woman who would do the cooking beer in the house, brewing the beer. Uh, women would control the breweries. For instance, in ancient Egypt, they all had their own breweries. Women would be in charge. And uh, so they were the main, became the main beer sellers and mm. barmaids still in sort of Dickensian novels. And women, so women would start making surplus beer because they'd been making it for the home and then they would go and sell it. So they'd put greenery over their doors and in some cases they'd put a broom up against their door, which signified that you were selling beer. And they would stand on the corner and they'd advertise their beer by wearing a tall hat and... (laughs) They would often have a pet cat who would <laughs> chase the pests away. The <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just a cuttlefish. <laughs> well, there is, is, that a is this a theory? This is this where this the witch or... image comes from. Yeah, ah. so they, they were tool hats said, I'm the beer selling lady, I'm the ale wife. And um, they all had cats. They had a as cat well. to chase away pests because otherwise they ate the grain with which they made the beer.
0: They were all testing out crazy ingredients
2: like Eye of Newt and yeah, stuff yeah exactly. well, The bane
1: was yeah, yeah. hallucinogenic yeah. there you go stirring it around in their cauldrons
2: all their massive mortars
1: yes yeah <laughs>
2: oh my goodness
1: and then came the witch really wow, wow. yeah it's a thought that it's I haven't a... made up yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that after five months of forensically analyzing the indents made by a pen on paper, Dorset police managed to recover 26 pages of lost words by a blind novelist who hadn't realized that her pen had run out of ink.
3: That is quite remarkable.
0: Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. Uh, This was an author called Trish Vickers. It was her first book that she was writing. She had gone blind um, through diabetes and she decided that she wanted to pass her time by writing a book. So she created a system and she did it longhand with pen, created a system where she had elastic bands along the paper. She would write out the pages and then her son would come at the end of the week and he would transcribe them um, onto uh, a Word document or whatever he chose. So he came one week after she'd had this burst of inspiration. She wrote 26 pages, but he discovered these blank pages sitting there. It oh. turns out the pen had run out. She was devastated. He was devastated because she'd written such great stuff. And it is quite funny. And it's incredibly funny. <laughs> uh, so, thank you, James, for pointing that out. <laughs> yeah, so she was very upset. And um, they got in touch with the police to say, can you do anything about this? And um, yeah. The and fr- they arrested the pen manufacturer, <laughs> <apparently>. <laughs> Yeah, so actually it's, it's very sweet. At Dorset Police Station, someone said they would look through the pages um, with the special light that they use for forensics to see the little markings that the pen would have left mm. on the page, the little dents. And um they spent 5 months. Now it wasn't 5 months of intense analysis. <laughs> the burglars
3: in Dorset at the yeah. time were
0: just having a field day. <laughs> it was uh, I believe it was one person
2: who did it on her lunch break for uh, 5 months. Although if you are a burglar having a field day is probably a very bad day for you.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> burglars call it having a house full of electronic equipment day. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but so um, she
0: managed to get the book done It was called Granifer's Legacy um, Sadly she she actually passed away Before she oh. could hold a physical copy in her mm. hands But it was published two hours Prior to her passing away The physical copies oh. yeah. So wow. she just missed out by two hours
1: She knew it was being published She though. knew
0: and I think she held a proof um, in her hand um, So yeah
2: So I thought that the only method You know when you make indentations on paper um, You can kind of read it Or you can shade over it with a pencil and that kind of shows mm. up because uh, it doesn't the pencil shading doesn't yeah. fill the indentations do you know how the police do it they have a special wand <laughs>
3: <laughs> so first of all they don't do the pencil thing do they because no. that could
2: damage the evidence right but they have this device they've invented called an electrostatic detection apparatus and they basically documents which are charged with static a piece of paper charged with static builds up more charge in the furrows mm-hmm. where the pencil is indented or the pen is indented mm-hmm. than on the flat and even, even really microscopic, non-visible to the naked eye, yeah. furrows mm. exist. Amazing. So they put the document on this plate and then they pass a wand charged with electricity over it. And then they apply this mist of toner and the toner just gravitates towards the furrows. And you fill in a page of writing that way. Wow. It's basically a magic wand.
1: So sort of, they sort of charge up the indents yeah. Yeah. that have got wow. all this static.
2: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, super
1: cool. Uh, it's quite similar to fingerprinting right that kind of process Uh. where with fingerprinting you can kind of do it yourself so apparently a really good substance for putting over fingerprints so you can see them is raw cocoa powder if you want to do it, you can use raw cocoa powder or talcum powder.
3: But you're not going to have the database of the entire country <laughs> at home, are you? <laughs> <laughs> All you're just going to see is a, a fingerprint that you can't really recognise. Yeah,
1: but you can definitely, if it's like who took my chocolate bar, you can definitely get your family's fingerprints, I reckon, and <laughs> yeah. in your room I, and then compare them.
3: It's <laughs> a real insight into others' childhood. <laughs> that, that? Yeah,
1: definitely would have done that. <laughs>
3: um, the The... System the magic one system that you talked about um is called the electrostatic detection apparatus ESDA hmm. and it was invented by two DJs. Wow cool. Um they were called DJ Foster and DJ Morantz. They weren't disc jockeys, it was just their names.
1: <laughs> oh okay <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I was uh,
3: thinking they were bored in the booth one day. No, it's just a coincidence that they had the same two initials,
2: and I thought it was quite funny. It that is good. very yeah, funny. It was That's a good right. setup. You had us going. Yeah. You had us going yeah. in the first half.
1: We did not see it coming.
2: <laughs> and I was thinking, those are pretty boring names for DJs, aren't
3: yeah. they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> DJ Foster. <laughs> um, can I just say one more thing on mm. ESDA? Yeah. Um, so ESDA is kind of famous because um, it's what. Do you remember the West Midlands Serious Crime Squad got into a lot of trouble for faking people's um, confessions? Oh. Uh, the Birmingham pub bombings? Oh, yeah. Uh, they got... Um, the Birmingham released. Six? Yeah, they yeah. got released because of that. And it was using ESDA that they found that the police were making these fel- fake confessions. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Oh, very cool. No, that Not funny, cool.
3: but true. Mm. Yeah.
1: Uh, Val McDermid actually has written a book on forensics, which sounds really good. I was reading a summary of it. So she's the she's a sort of crime writer, isn't she? Of yeah. fiction, yeah. Yeah, of fiction. Uh, but this is a factual book. And so there's loads of good facts in there, but there's a story of the arsonist called John Orr, which I didn't know about. He was quite a big criminal in the 1980s. He was basically a fireman. And who ended up right. being done for burning down loads and loads oh. of houses. Because if you're a fireman, you know how. So I think he was suspected in more than a thousand fires in California. Whoa. And he was eventually caught. He was caught partly because of forensics. So they matched a fingerprint on one bit of sort of half burned match that he'd used. Wow. But he was also caught. do because- you think they went,
3: we've got a match? <laughs> and they went yeah we can see that
1: so good there was two hours of confusion there <laughs> between laurel and hardy the fire <laughs> um so another thing that tipped them off that he might be responsible was that he'd written a novel called points of origin that contained a highly detailed description of the same fire that they were investigating wow. Bore several striking similarities and also the fire that he was done for in 1984 Everyone who investigated it said this is an accidental fire, and he kept insisting that no, it was arson. Really? So it's like wow. he really had this desire for people. Do you think to he know? was one
3: of these people who deliberately set fires so they can go and put them out?
2: Oh yeah, because that does happen. We doesn't did it? that. It's called mm. something like hero syndrome. Hero syndrome. Oh,
1: yeah. uh, Maybe. Uh, yeah. Well, he's not a hero now. No. He is serving a long jail sentence. Very much
3: a zero. <laughs> nice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's what the judge said when he passed the sentence. <laughs> zero zero. I would love
3: to be one of those comedy judges
1: that just <laughs> said, oh, said man, something yeah. funny <laughs>
3: just as they're sending them
0: down.
1: I didn't know that comedy judge was a career actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that a thing? Yeah. Well yeah. it's
0: not no, you don't apply to be the comedy judge. It's not <laughs> You're just a regular judge who happens to have a bit of fun. There was that guy who got done for um he got done for something but he loved the Beatles and the judge sentenced him using as many Beatles. Oh no, that's
2: so naff. (laughs) What what did he do? What did he say? Oh. um, Maybe
0: he um, stole from the tax man. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you probably were, it was probably a cry for help. You may have had a hard day's night in your yellow submarine. (laughs) Um.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, was the criminal a fan of the Beatles? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, got it, got it. So it was kind of
1: like the Beatles were sending him down. That is really harsh. You
2: shouldn't have used your revolver yeah', yeah oh, cool. the big cool. albums yeah, getting
1: yeah. dark yeah. yeah yeah you've got a rubber soul <laughs> yeah because yes. you know it's like a bad soul a, a robber's soul a rubber soul a rubber soul is better a robbers soul. a robber's soul is better I mean yeah.
3: none of these are good are they <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: the comedy judge is spoken and, uh... <laughs>
0: okay that's it that is all of our facts thank you so much for listening if you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast we can be found on our twitter accounts i'm on at schreiberland andy at andrew hunter m james at james harkin
1: and jasinski you can email podcast at qi.com
0: yep you can go to our group account at no such thing or our website no such thing as a we have links up there for our upcoming tour you can also find all of our previous episodes there we will be back again next week with another episode thank you so much 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 for listening. Goodbye.